0: to worship you, O God. Make your Son the heart's desire of every person that hears the Word of God this morning throughout the land, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to open to the Gospel of John this morning. Gospel of John. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. So turn to John. The John of the Gospel is John the Apostle, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee is sort of an incidental uh, character, if you will, historical person in the Bible spoken of, and he is the father of two of the Apostles, John and James. And so I'll ask you to turn to John chapter 7 this morning. John is... um, Unique in one way, he refers to himself as the, the apostle who Jesus loved. He saw himself as something of a favorite, and I believe he was right. Um, so turn there this morning, John seven thirty seven, and I'm going to read down through verse uh, verse 44. And so John writes, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore many from the crowd when they heard this saying said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. A Father We pray in Jesus' name this morning and ask that your Holy Spirit would attend us, for we are those who believe in your name, O Lord, and unravel the mysteries written herein. We pray in Jesus' name. All right, and so we have this feast day and the people are gathered around. Jesus has recently performed a miracle, feeding of the 5,000. That went around quite a bit, as you would know in that time, things get around. His crowds were great. People came out to hear him. <clears throat> and this is the last day of the great feast, which we'll talk about at some length this morning, which feast and, and uh, what type of feast it was. But uh, in the midst here, Jesus stands out and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, this is not a new concept with the Lord. He has said this before. He has compared truth with coming to him. Or rather, drinking with truth and thirst with a thirst for knowledge or a thirst for truth. And he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. Living water out of his heart. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, the same rivers of truth that flow out of him should flow out of you and me. And so let's get into it a little here. At the last day of one of the major feasts of Israel we read that Jesus stood and prophesied. And so he stood up. He was known. I think it was expected by this time that he was going to say something. Everyone knew he was, there was something special about him. And once again, he offers this mystical blessing of living water. And once again, he proclaims his presence at the feast as the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies. And so, what is this great feast that we 're talking about? Is it the Passover? do you suppose Do you suppose if you go back a uh, few paragraphs, a couple chapters or so, you 'll find it 's not the Passover at all. Is it Pentecost it's not Pentecost at all, either. If you remember, Passover was in the spring, but that became the first month in the Hebrew calendar called Nisan, all right So Passover came in the spring. Um, you know that Pentecost had to come um 50 days later, that's what Pentecost means. And so 50 days later, or seven weeks later, I know that comes to 49, but you have to be Jewish to understand it. That's the best I can do for you. It's 50 days later. And Pentecost was a harvest festival that came later, if you remember, all right? And then later on in the year, somewhere around, uh, so, so Pentecost would have happened uh, um, somewhere in, uh, in June, perhaps 50 50 days after the Passover service. And uh, somewhere around what we would call October is when the Feast of Tabernacles would take place. And this was the great Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three pilgrim feasts where everyone had to get together and, uh, in the city. You know, when you think about it, our Lord loves to see his people rejoice. These aren't small parties. These things go on for eight days. And you're not allowed to do any normal kinds of labor during that time. You're just there to sing praises to God, to eat the food, to drink the wine, and to thank him for the blessings that he gave you at that time. And so the last day of the great feast refers to the last of the autumn festivals of ancient Israel, the so-called Feast of Tabernacles. It's also referred to as the Feast of Booths. A tabernacle is a booth or tent, right? It's the third in the order of the pilgrim festivals, and um, they're so-called pilgrim festivals because the children of Israel were commanded to travel to Jerusalem for them. In other words, they went on a pilgrimage to attend. The others were the more well-known Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, as it's been known In the Feast of Passover. And I think we've labored over that enough that most everybody should know what Passover is and where it comes from. But this feast, like the others, goes back to the time of Moses, and we read about it in the book of Leviticus, where Moses writes, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. Now, I want to tell you, um, Orthodox Jews still do this. They still celebrate this. I have a Jewish friend right here in Lakeville who does this. He builds a little booth and he goes out there and he celebrates and he praises God. He doesn't go to Jerusalem for it, but uh, he does it here. He makes a pilgrimage into his backyard and does the best he can to honor the tradition. And so you shall dwell in booths for seven days that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So what's he doing? Is he punishing them? Get out of the house, get into the tent for eight days. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is it's designed to bring remembrance of other days. And so the feast called Sukkot or tabernacles was like the other feast designed to bring remembrance of former things of former trials of former deliverances this feast was a sort of reenactment of the wilderness days they were in the wilderness when they came out of egypt they went through the red sea the great <clears throat> the great miracles of the 10 plagues happened to to break the will of pharaoh their oppressor and then when they were backed up by The ocean or the sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other side, the Lord spread open the Red Sea and the Israelites followed through. When their oppressors, their enemies tried to follow them, the Red Sea, of course, closed and drowned the armies of Egypt. And so all of these things are memorializing these times. Now, once they came over, if you go back, it's really kind of distressing. You would think that if God did all these things to deliver you, Um, you would think that you might wait a little while before you started complaining about things. But that didn't happen. They started complaining pretty much right away. Why? Well, they're they're still in a desert. They're still in a desert. There's no food, there's no water, and they're wondering how they're going to make it. And they actually begin to long for going back to the land of their oppressors because they had, um, well, leeks and onions. And if you don't know what those are, I know you know what onions are. If you don't know what leeks are, well, that's because you don't show up at Market Basket where they have, every, they have everything. They have leeks and onions over there. When I go to, whenever I go to Trukey's, I say I long for the leeks of Market Basket. But um, <clears throat> these things are all designed for remembrance, all right? So the feast was a sort of reenactment of those wilderness years because they lived for 40 years, which, by the way, was a punishment, for lack of faith. They didn't get to go directly into the promised land because they didn't trust the God who said he'd bring them there. They thought it was a free ride. There was some hardship in getting there. He never said it would be easy, right? And so they had to be in the desert for 40 years, but he cared for them there, and he fed them miraculously every single day the manna came down from heaven and fed them for 40 years. I've told you before, you start to forget that the manna's coming down as you're reading through the first five books of the um well the first six books i should say of the old testament and you get to joshua and all of a sudden it says and when they came over on dry land across the jordan the manna ceased you're like oh yeah the manna was still going on i forgot you know moses was gone he was dead joshua took over all these years the lord took care of them all right and that's the story And if you don't believe it, that's fine. But you disagree with Jesus when you do that. And I think you disagree with Jesus to your peril. And so they were called to reenact those days. So they would remember the time of deliverance. And And remembrance brings understanding, friends. And so we read this from Deuteronomy. And so it shall be. When the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you, large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and when you have eaten... And are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. When you have eaten and are full, then beware. Friends, that's when we get into trouble. And I wonder if that isn't the place our nation is today. We've eaten, and we're full, right? And we have plenty, and there's abundance and there's no scarcity on the horizon although if you look a little further you might see trouble out there but we've all we're all full we've worked hard we've made some money we bought some groceries we've paid our mortgages we're in our neat little houses on our couches and our flat screen TVs and we forget that though it seems sometimes like we did this ourselves we didn't do this ourselves This is the blessing of God, the overabundant blessing of God. And the children of God are not allowed to forget, hence the feasts. And they come annually. And The great feast is Sabbath, by the way. And always come to the Sabbath and devour the food that the Lord puts before you. And so in our nation, we've all eaten, we're all full, and yet we forget the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage and that's what our thanksgiving festival is all about it's a day of remembrance really that's what it is right it's a day of remembrance that we came here in lack and now we're in plenty it's a day instituted by our leaders of former times so that we remember the mercy and the goodness of god that's what it's about it's not about the pumpkin pies and the fowl they gathered, which might have been turkeys, it might have been ducks. As I told you earlier, I read, oh, everything's a myth about Thanksgiving. It never said turkeys in the ancient writings. It said fowl. I'll tell you, I still live in New England, and every morning there's about ten turkeys in my way. If they're not in my yard, they're on my way here. <clears throat> I usually step on the gas and, and hope for a good meal. But Oh, they're all over the place. They're pests. I think it was turkeys, because they would be easy to get easier to get than the ducks. Think of how much ammo they'd waste trying to shoot ducks. How many people is a duck going to feed? You know, I, I love duck when it's cooked right. I usually don't cook it. There's only a few places you can buy it. but a duck doesn't do what a turkey does. So I think turkeys win the day in the argument. But still, that's not what it's about, right? It's about abundance. It's about thanking God, because we didn't always have abundance, but God brought us out of it because of our perseverance and faith with him. So it's a day of remembrance. It's when the Pilgrim Fathers had their famous feast in 1621, and they were remembering the former times and the times of lack and scarcity. And why wouldn't they? They sailed here 102 strong, and after the first winter, there was a mere 53 of them left. Hunger and cold and various sicknesses took the rest of them in just a few months. There were months when two or three a day were dying. Can you imagine? Yet in a year's time, with the help of friendly natives, they they found their way back to abundance, albeit a temporary abundance, and they attributed their good fortune to the Lord their God and famously gave thanks and instituted a day. Right, they remembered the rationing of last year's corn. You may have heard the story. First year, they were so, the, the food was so scarce, they actually got down to giving each person five kernels of corn. You know what an ear of corn looks like? Imagine you had an ear of corn and you weren't allowed to eat it. You had to take all the kernels off and share them with everyone so that everyone got a little bit of food. Five kernels of corn. Very famously that next year when all the plates were full with good food and the local tribes um, <clears throat> with Massasoit came with five dressed deer and a bunch of other good things to eat, they had abundance and they had their fowl and they had whatever else they could make and praise God for for the crops that they grew. But yet on the side of their dish they each put five kernels of corn in remembrance of the scarcity Of previous times. Religion, friends, has always been about remembrance. They attributed their good fortune this year to the Lord their God and gave thanks. And so the Israelites, and and so they learned this tradition from the Israelites of old. The Israelites would come into the city and construct these makeshift shelters. They'd build booths with thatched roofs of palm fronds and other vegetation. And like all the feasts they developed over the years with different um, traditions added to them in order that they would not forget former times and so that they would remember the goodness of God in the present time. And as time went on, the booths were made more and more decorative with the seasonal fruit and the vegetation of the harvest. The citrons, which uh, is like a large lemon, were added as decorations. The lulav or lulab, a palm branch wrapped with myrtle and willow fronds, would decorate these booths and probably give it a very aromatic scent. And in later years, the Israelites added a water pouring ceremony in remembrance of the Lord's giving of water in the desert. Now, if you ever look at a little uh, diagram or map of ancient Jerusalem, you will see that it's oddly shaped and there's a wall all around it and there's all kinds of dwellings and buildings and there's um, even a a couple of water sources and you've got the, the great temple complex of Herod over here. And in the south, you see this pool. It's really um, a spring-fed uh, reservoir. All right, the Pool of Siloam, and the priests would go to the Pool of Siloam, and they would gather up water and pour it out on the altar in remembrance of the of God assuaging their thirst in the wilderness. All right. Matthew Henry comments on this. He says, Dr. Lightfoot, let me just say, Dr. Lightfoot is someone that uh, the, the Puritans love to quote from. He was a rabbinical scholar in the 1600s. Um, I don't have his exact dates before me, but he was early in the 1600s, and Dr. Lightfoot is is uh, referred to by... Uh, Puritans like Matthew Henry and, and, of course, John Calvin refers to Lightfoot at times as well. He says, Dr. Lightfoot and others tell us it was a custom of the Jews, which they received by tradition, tradition rather the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, to have a solemnity which they called Libatio Aquae, the pouring of water. They fetched a golden vessel, writes Henry, A vessel of water from the pool of Siloam brought it into the temple with sound of trumpet and other ceremonies. And upon the ascent to the altar, they poured it out before the Lord with all possible expressions of joy. They were feeling the joy that their ancient ancestors felt in a dry and dusty desert when the Lord brought water out of a rock by miracle. In their time, some of them believed that the water symbolized certain things. Some of them said it symbolized the law of Moses. Others believe it symbolized the Holy Spirit. We can see by these details that the Lord was undoubtedly referring to these customs, though, in his speech that day. He, they were pouring out water, so he referred his word to living water. Water that's poured, not stagnant and still, but pouring out and welling up. And the Lord makes reference to their time in the wilderness when they did indeed hunger and thirst. And when their thirst became great, it became so great that it could only be assuaged by a miracle. There was no other way for them to be sustained in a dry and dusty wasteland. Where is the water of life in such a place as that? And so we read the Lord spoke to Moses in the book of Numbers. He said, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. And Moses lifted his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. And so they were given the water in the desert. And in this ceremony... 1,500 years later, in the time of Christ, they're still remembering and reenacting this ceremony, and so they bring the water in, and they praise God for water. Water was life to ancient cultures, particularly in that part of the world. We like to point out that the New Testament is the best exegesis or the best explanation of the Old Testament. What does Test- an Old Testament thing reveal? Go to Paul in the New Testament, and he'll tell you what, it, what it's all about. And so Paul explains the symbolism of this, of this water. He said, they all drank from that same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, Christ was the one that poured forth the living water, and he was proclaiming himself again in the feast. With symbolism that they could grasp hold of, the, all their lives they celebrated in this way. And so, this passage was, of course, is not the first time the Lord referred to water as life or to thirst as death. And we may remember his conversation with the woman at the well, right? The Samaritan woman at the well. John's earlier account, a couple of chapters earlier, it had much to say on the matter of thirst as spiritual thirst and of water as spiritual renewal. The whole world thirsts together, but I really believe that the world is so used to being thirsty, it's forgotten what it's like to take a drink. They've longed so long for a drink, they've forgotten what refreshment it might be, if they would let themselves believe. We live in a time when it seems so very few of us are searching for eternal things or eternal truths. Our society's quite given up on truth. It's not anything new. It goes way. It goes back to Pilate. What is truth? One man's truth, another man's truth. So that always lingered, that thought. But it seems we're overwhelmed in that view, in our world today. I think we're an agnostic society. It's been an amazement to me all my Christian life that though we live in a thirsty world, in a dry and dusty generation, that so few of us can be said to be searching to have a thirst quenched. And why do you suppose that is? You know, we had people this morning pray for their relatives because they got together on Thanksgiving and nobody had a thirst to hear from the word of God. And nobody had an inkling or, or, or few or many had no inkling at all to thank the God of Israel for the blessings that we're having. Even forgetting why we had the holiday in the first place. It's a great holiday. It comes on a Thursday. So you almost automatically get the next three days off. It's a great thing. And that's very much like the, uh, the Israelites would have done. They had an eight-day celebration. What did Dr. Lightfoot say? They all manner of celebration and rejoicing. God wants his people to rejoice together, but he wants us to do it in fellowship around the Lord. So we live in a dusty time. And why do you think that is? Well, I, I think I can tell you. It's because we live in a time when even the concept of absolute truth has fallen on hard times. In fact, I would go further. I don't think people believe there is truth at all. I think they believe we each have our own opinions. Some may be closer to an absolute truth or other, but who would even ever know if we got there? Somewhere, I'm going to tell you, in the mid-19th century, this view hit the evangelical churches. Some of the great theologians and scholars of our faith began to distrust the idea that the words of Christ were actually the words of Christ. Of truth. They began to distrust right in the church, just like the priests of old, right? And if it did exist, how could anyone be certain that the truth he trusted as absolute actually was the final word on the subject of reality, both material and spiritual realities? How could you know? The school of thought that was spawned at that time, we now refer to as theological liberalism, friends. There's Christianity and there's liberalism. Gresham Machin, a great uh, uh, Presbyterian scholar from Princeton, back when Princeton was just falling into these, you know, these early so-called Ivy League colleges were thoroughly Puritan when they began, and it didn't take long before um, they had fallen into this liberalism school. Will Machen was a professor there who saw this encroaching, and he left and he founded another school, and he wrote a great book called Christianity and Liberalism, and he's trying to show us the differences. Liberalism masquerades as Christianity, but it doesn't really believe in the doctrines of Scripture because how how could you believe in them? How could you know that they're true? Well, Christ tells us how you can know. You have to have faith, and then the Holy Spirit comes in and assures you Of the truth of it. Liberalism is the belief that man cannot really know truth. All he can ever know is his opinion about the truth. And so the Lord famously said to the woman at the well, give me a drink. And she protested. And how did she protest? You may remember, by putting forth this very thing. Whose truth? The idea that one man's truth is another man's fable, she put forth. And so she argued, as the 19th century scholars argue, she said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem's the place that one ought to worship. And so there it is. There's this question as to whose truth is truth. Where do we worship? What do we worship? How do we worship? We may all have our opinions. We Samaritans have our opinions. You Jews have your opinions. Let's leave it at that. We have our wells of truth. You have your wells of truth, Right? We may all have our ancient traditions. We all have our internal impressions, impressions rather, upon our souls as things like right and wrong, good and evil, temporal and eternal. We all have impressions upon our souls about these things. But in doing so, we must be part of the school of thought that regards the words of Christ as just one more man's opinion. So when she protested his request for water it being a breach of custom for a Jew to ask a Samaritan woman for water, he said this to her. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In other words, he put aside all those traditions that she brought up. He put aside all those questions that she brought up. Where do we worship? He said, it doesn't matter. We can worship on this mountain or another mountain, but the Lord is seeking those who worship him to worship in spirit and truth. Why? Because truth exists. It has a source, and the source is before you. Ask him for a drink, and you'll know. The difference is there, she actually listened, and the and the well of water poured out of her throughout all Samaria. If you go back and read it, we I preached on it just a few weeks ago. So we have the The verse before us is far-reaching. It refers to water as life. In fact, it refers to it as eternal life. It refers to the living water of the Word as the only true refreshment of soul in this life. Nothing else fulfills like the Word of God. He refers to himself as the only source in this life that might quench the only real thirst in this life. I know we all thirst for many things, but really... When you're on your deathbed and I and I hope you get a deathbed because that means you get time to think about these things one more time but when you're in such a place you're not going to think boy I just wish I gained more money in my life or maybe more fame or or maybe um you know some more things or maybe had another vocation than the one I had you're going to you're going to think where does my soul go now what happens to me now that beca- everything gets stripped away in that moment and you have one question What is the truth about reality? And here's the Lord putting it out there. And all you have to do is drink it. It's the only true refreshment of soul for the only true thirst in this life. And once it's drunk, it wells up. He says it wells up. And when you've received the living water of the word of God and faith in the living Savior, you too will be a rock of living water. And the truth that you know... As absolute will well up in you and burst forth and your words will pour forth on all your unsuspecting associates and friends and relatives at Thanksgiving and they'll get up and walk out just like a lot of these people did. And they'll see your faith at work in your life and your words will assuage the thirsts of dry and parched humanity. Drink deeply from the well of truth, which is the word of God. Friends, believing is drinking and drinking Is life everlasting. And so just as the water ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were being enacted, as they had been enacted for the past 1,500 years since Moses instituted them, the fulfillment of the Labatio Aquae was being fulfilled, the pouring forth of the water. The Lord was there pouring out the truth of the gospel for all who would drink from it. And the parched souls of all who found the faith to receive it were quenched with the water of the word, and yet there was still a promise to be received. There was still a promise to be received, the promise of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's not leaving you on your own to work your way through the circuitous paths of Old Testament law. The Holy Spirit will be there to lead you and to give you discernment. And so he said, but, and so John writes this editorial note, but Jesus spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. Friends, you know, we talk about unity a lot. The Christian faith is exclusive, not inclusive. It's for those who believe. The Holy Spirit is for those who believe. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified, he writes. All right? All right. And so he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. So the Spirit is part and parcel of this pouring of water, too. He's going to pour out the Spirit. It's a sort of baptism, and it's mentioned that way elsewhere in the Scriptures. So now we have to grapple with this bit of doctrine, don't we? What is he talking about? Just exactly what Jesus did refer to when he said that the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Given to whom? Given in what way? I'll appeal to a lengthy quotation from one commentator, if I may, Leon Morris, who wrote the commentary on the book of John in the series called the uh, New International uh, Commentary on the New Testament, or the so-called NICNT. So Morris writes, this probably points to the period after Pentecost. Now, that's... Uh, I think pretty well received in the evangelical churches. The, the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. You remember the story. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you have to go to Acts 2 and read about it. All right? Jesus was gone, and he said, tarry a while in the, uh, in the uh, uh, city of Jerusalem and wait until you receive power from on high. And they waited, um, was it 10 days? They waited some days. I believe it was 10 days. And they were all together in a room, 120 disciples, and the Holy Spirit comes rushing in. Invisible, but with signs and wonders. And suddenly, he filled them with the word of God, and they could preach it in any language they needed to. And they went down to the streets, and they preached it to the people of all the nations that were gathered there at that time, at the Feast of Pentecost. And they would have been many, and from many nations of the three continents. And they had fire on their head, and the sound of the Holy Spirit came into the room. And so uh, Dr. Mara says that that's probably the period of the giving of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit to the infant church that day transformed everything, he wrote, so that all that followed might be called the era of the Spirit. That's where we live. We live in the era of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. He doesn't leave. You can't scare him away. He's God. The Bible does not speak of the Spirit as totally inactive until that point. The Holy Spirit wasn't born that day. He wasn't born at all. He existed throughout all time and eternity. There's much about him in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, but nothing can compare to his activity, Morris writes, in the apostolic age. That's the age of the apostles. And then the Spirit was spirit in a way that he had not been before. John tells us that it was the work of Jesus that made the difference. It was not yet spirit because Jesus had not yet glorified. And listen to this. Calvary, he writes, is the necessary prelude to Pentecost. Jesus had not yet given himself up at the cross. And when he did, the Holy Spirit came into the world. And so we may understand Jesus' words as this. The Holy Spirit brings life to the believer in a way that he has never experienced life before. He would receive the Spirit, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of truth, as he had never known life or truth before, and he would receive all of this blessing through faith, believing in Christ. And what is belief, friends? What is belief? Well, it's belief in a message, But it's also belief in the messenger of the message. Now, as to the rivers of water flowing out of the believer in the same way that they flow from Christ himself, that's the true work of the Holy Spirit. How do you receive this word today? How do you know if the words of the preacher are merely his own words? Maybe I'm just spouting off my opinions this morning. I tell you this, I've said from the pulpit before that I'm glad I don't have to do this job. Maybe I should say I'm glad I don't have to do it alone. Friends, Sunday morning's a long morning for me. I go out and pray the Lord meets me in the pulpit. If he does, then you'll hear from him. And if you have prayed for me all week as I'm preparing the words to bring to your friends, they will not be my words, they will be God's words. And God has decided they would come through the churches and that the Holy Spirit would be in those who believe the word. I'm here to tell you I believe the word. So how do you receive this word today? How do you know if the words of the preacher are merely his own words or the words of Christ? And I'll tell you how. It's by the witness of the Holy Spirit within you. And I'll explain a little bit about that from the teachings of Christ. You can only know this if the living fountain of the Holy Spirit has been poured into your spirit. Otherwise, you might say, well, Dan knows a lot of things. He's a smart guy. I'm hoping you'll go that far. Maybe you won't even go that far. You might just say, boy, he likes to talk. Writes a long bunch of notes, gives them to us like anybody cares. I mean, with the Holy Spirit, are you going to take a different view? Right? He'll teach you this truth. I do the preaching, but the Holy Spirit is in you to apply those words to your soul so you can know the truth of them. The messenger is Christ himself. Now, as to the rivers of water flowing into the believer... The same way they flow from Christ himself, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit teaches you this truth. He intercedes in your prayer life. Sometimes you think you're praying, and you are. And sometimes you don't think you're praying, and you are. He'll lead you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will lead you into the truth, and these are the functions of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. First, he is a teacher. Friends, first I should say he's in you if you've believed. If you believe the gospel of Christ and that Christ is the Son of God, then the Holy Spirit has come into you. It's the promise of Christ. In other words, that living water is there, ready to burst forth and offend all your relatives. It's there. And I'm going to get to the offending relative spot. I'm, I'm sort of joking around, but this is what happens every time it's preached, it seems. So first he's a teacher. Well, how do we know? Well, Jesus said this to the disciples, I still have many things to teach you, but you cannot bear them all now. Even Jesus no, you can't give everybody all the doctrines the first day. And he knew he was leaving, but he knew that the other person of the, of, of the Trinity, one of the others, the Holy Spirit, would come in his place, right? He said, however... When the spirit of truth has come, he'll lead you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. You'll know that Christ is Christ, the Son of God, because the Holy Spirit, his whole ministry is to glorify Christ. And he does it through you, through his witness to you. He'll glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is declaring the truth of the gospel to you right now and always. So the Holy Spirit is a teacher. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is a helper. Or the, uh, the Greek word is parakletos, or in the English, paraclete. Some of your Bibles might still say paraclete in John 14, where John writes um, that Jesus says, I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Friends, this all happens when you believe. This isn't like incremental. This happens all at once, simultaneously. You receive the Holy Spirit, and he begins to witness to you. He begins to reveal to you the truth of the gospel that you couldn't get on your own. You couldn't get it just because I explained it really well one day. You got it because the Spirit was in there applying it to your heart, teaching it to you inwardly. God was teaching to you. He knows how to teach in a way we don't know. He witnesses to your soul, and he teaches you all these things, but he's also a helper in times of trouble. I'll pray the Father, and he'll give you a helper, that he may abide in you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. You see that? Not everyone can receive him. Now, who's the world? Okay, in Scripture, there are two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom, and there's the kingdom of the world. In the world of those who have not believed the message. I used to belong to that kingdom. How about you? I switched kingdoms. You know, I'm a hypocrite. I switched kingdoms. (laughs) My old friends, you're a hypocrite. I'm like, yeah, I also became an adult and did things differently. But um, yeah, I switched kingdoms. I came in and I found this helper. And he began leading me into things before I even knew about going to church. I was reading all these things and realizing the Holy Spirit is teaching me things. I never thought I could know. And he's actually taught me that most of what I did know was false. And I had to go back and and give up a lot of those things. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the Spirit is a helper, the Spirit is a teacher, and the Spirit is an intercessor. He comes in between you and God the Father. Paul writes this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. All right? The gift of tongues. That's what people say. Groanings that cannot be uttered. The gift of tongues. I said, they cannot be uttered. <laughs> you get what, the point? You don't utter them. He utters them. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes a decision for the saints according to the will of God. We don't always know God's will. But the Holy Spirit always knows God's will because he's God. So he intercedes and he fixes our prayer life for us. So what we have here is the Lord Jesus promising to pour out into the hearts of every believer the very presence of God himself. When you believe, God comes into you to teach you and help you and intercede for you. God the Holy Spirit, and he lives and works within us to apply the blessings of God to us. So he's here to help us, to inform us, to sanctify us, and yet the ancient conflict in men's hearts continues to present itself. And so the ancient curse of God, spoken of by John, comes to pass. And what's that from John chapter 1? Jesus was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. Right? That's what he's doing here. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so we read this, verses 40 through 44. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. You remember this thing? Who do some say that I am? Well, some say you're this guy, some say you're this guy. Well, that's what they're doing here. Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. The Christ is always one of the candidates for who he might be, I hope you notice, right? But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Now, you know that whole thing, right? The Pharisees believe prophets don't come out of Galilee. For the most part, they don't. Galilee's in the north, Jerusalem's in the south, and they're going to make the point about Bethlehem also being um, in Judea and not Galilee. And that's where the Christ, they knew that. The Christ had to come from Bethlehem. Interesting how he did, but they didn't know that. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem where David was? In other words, if the Christ comes, he has to be of the actual physical um, genealogy of David. He has to be the great, great, great grandson of King David, a thousand years before Christ. And so there's this division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. So what do we want to make of all this? He comes out and he gives his gospel truth. Some believe and right away they know he's Christ. Others like, I'm not so sure. I don't like what he's saying. I know a lot of things. that I know he's going to come from Judea because prophets don't come out of the north. I know he's going to come from the seed of David because that's what the scriptures say. And everybody's got their opinions again. Right? Opinions are wonderful things. And so again we find that the words of Christ which ought to have been received with joy... Received with praises, received with thanksgiving to God. Thank you. You told me the truth. You sent your own son to tell me. And that's not what we read. It was rather tarnished with little sectarian speculations and obscure prophecies. You know, I want to say something. I almost inserted it here, but I didn't. But I'm going to put it in here now. We've got to learn how to argue. Arguing can be a good thing. But if you come to the argument table, if the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to fellowship afterwards and had pizza with us, right? They would certainly be arguing about a bunch of things. But if they all come with the intent of being seen as being right, they're going to leave ashamed. They're going to leave in shame. If they come with the intent of hearing another good argument, and maybe an argument that's better than yours, they should. Even if they don't concede that you're right, concede that you gave a pretty good defense of your position. You know, we all have little sectarian differences in beliefs. Look at politics today. I mean, the sectarian beliefs that people come with are are incredible. It doesn't matter if you ever make a good point. No one will give any credit to anyone. That's not the way we should argue, certainly not as the church. You have to come expecting that other wise men have gifts and have knowledge that maybe you don't have. And put yours out there humbly, and we all walk away from the table a better person, and maybe an enlightened person, maybe someone else had the uh, true representation of a doctrine that we didn't know. But no, that didn't happen here. They just started squabbling like they did in the New Testament, right? So the divisions continue to keep the people in the dark. All the speculation starts beginning. Well, maybe he's this, maybe he's that. Well, he couldn't be this because he didn't come from there, and he couldn't be that because he didn't come from him. And they start in. And then what? The truth is out there. The water is out there ready to be drunk, and no one's drinking it. So the prophet, who is this prophet that they talk about? Well, the prophet referred to here as the person Moses refers to in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Now, not everyone agrees that that prophet is a reference to Christ. It may be, it may not be. I'm not taking a stand this morning for you, all right? Now, some identify him, as I say, with Christ. Others believe him to be a precursor or a vocal presence of prophetic truths. As I wrote that, I thought, some might have believed that John the Baptist was the prophet. Others believe him to be a... um, Or rather, I've not formulated an opinion myself, as I've said, but I'll say that Moses pointed to a so-called prophet like me from your midst. So there are numerous ways that Jesus and Moses share amazingly similar lives. Certainly, they're from the midst of the Hebrew nation, right? The prospect of the prophet and the Messiah being one and the same is a defensible point. You can make a good case. I'm just going to give you an example of the case. Both were born in times of national bondage to a greater nation. Both had Gentile leaders, Pharaoh and Herod, decree their death at the time of their birth. Both were miraculously delivered in infancy and kept secret in their childhood. Moses was found in an ark of bulrushes. Jesus was found in a manger. Great leaders aren't born aren't floated down the Nile in a little basket or in a feeding trough uh, where the ox and lamb kept time and the little drummer boy came. Most Most people weren't born there, okay? Each of them were rejected by some among their own people, right? Jesus spoke of replacing Moses' emphasis in matters of the law. I just want to point this out as an example. Jesus said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you this. In other words, Moses said this, but I say this. That's a prophet like Moses among your midst. So I'm just making a case here, all right? Anyone on whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So I submit to you that there's a case to be made for the theory, at least. Now, as to the saying that Christ cannot come out of Galilee, well, I've made the case to you repeatedly over the years, all right? First of all, the Pharisees were just wrong in their estimation. Now, if they came to fellowship and sat down and had a piece of pepperoni pizza and put out that you, that you can't, that, uh, that uh, you know, the prophet can't come out of Galilee and they were sitting next to me, I would say, well, what about Jonah? If you were a Pharisee, you would say, you know, that's a good point. Gath heifer was near Nazareth in Galilee. And I would also say, um, he's the only prophet Jesus compared himself with. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the bowels of the earth three days and three nights. He compared himself. So prophet can, So you were just wrong in your estimation. The prophet couldn't come from there. So give that argument up, right? The Sadducees, you know what the Sadducees would say? We don't respect the book of Jonah. It's all full of miracles. We don't believe in miracles. So you can't do much there. So it amazes me, though. Here's what amazes me about They started having these little sectarian quarrels as soon as he made the announcement. It amazes me that no scholar of the time ever sought to solve the question of Jesus' earthly origins, right? People, friends, the Romans kept scrupulous birth records. All right, remember the whole point of Jesus' family coming to Bethlehem is they in the time of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria. They called for the census. Remember Luke, what, chapter 2? And so they all had to go to their place of birth. Jesus' family gets there a little late. There's no room at the inn, but they put you in the stall. And she gave the, up the baby in the stall. But they had to be in Bethlehem to be counted in the place of their ancestors. And Mary and Joseph were both descended of David. That could plainly have been found out if someone did some research. You would think maybe Caiaphas, the high priest, would have access to some of the archives. And say, so, you know, it's kind of strange because though Jesus came out of Nazareth in Galilee, he wasn't born there. It was actually, the record says he was born in, in Bethlehem. It seems to me you could, you could have done some research and found that out. So they could have solved the question. All they had to do was check the Roman register of Bethlehem births to find the baby Jesus among them. And as I say this, I don't really know how readily available that stuff was to the public, particularly the pub- public that is the, um, um, the conquered nation that's living in your, in your empire. But uh, it seems to me someone could have checked that. So all they had to do was check the genealogies of the parents to find that both Joseph and Mary had Davidic parentage. I remember years ago when I first came to the faith. Here's, what faith. here's what faith was to me. The truth was proclaimed, but only those of faith could receive the truth, all right? Now, they didn't have proof of where Jesus was born or was he of Davidic ancestry or not. But faith would have done something in you that wouldn't have been done there previously. I remember saying to a friend of mine, we were both... Uh, fancied ourselves pretty good scholars and philosophers back in the old days. And I was sitting with him when I first became a Christian. And I said, I'm going to read the Bible. And he said, yeah, um, I've said that many times. I never actually got through the whole Bible. Because you know, he meant for literary sake. Have background in Western literature, you read the Bible, right? Then you know what Moby Dick means when it starts off, call me Ishmael. You have an idea that Ishmael something. Captain Ahab is probably not a good guy because he was an evil kid. You know, you get all that. So scholars read the Bible for that reason. But I said, no, it's different for me this time. I'm mm-hmm. going to read the Bible, and as I'm reading it, I'm going to believe it. And he said, you can't say that. You haven't read it yet. You have to read it first and assess it. And I said, no, for some strange reason, I'm going to believe it as I read it. That's faith. The faith already witnessed to me that this is the source of truth. All I have to do is read it. And I'm not only going to believe it, I'm pretty sure I'm going to agree with it. That's the difference. That's what faith is. That's what the Holy Spirit does in you. To all others, the Scripture's strange and incomprehensible. It seems to me that men like to argue too much. And particularly the Jews of the first century, they're just always bickering about something. Friends, be careful you don't argue your way into hell. For there's no argument that can argue your way into heaven. Jesus is the rock, He's the source of living water in a dry and dusty world. And so He said to His detractors one time, He said, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever this stone falls, it will grind him to powder. In other words, give up your pride, fall down before Jesus, the rock of your salvation. And recognize who he is. Because if he falls on you in the last judgment, you will be ground into powder, not preserved. And he makes this metaphor, if you will. It's only our pride that stands between belief and unbelief, blessing and cursing, life and death. And that's the gospel. The gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Moses preached it in his time. Jesus preached it in his time. 1,500 years apart. And so we read this from Moses' time, where he wrote, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you. Oh, pastor, you, you give the gospel, it's so mysterious. No, it's not. It's right there. It's very plain. It's very simple. It's your pride that makes it mysterious. It's not mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven and bring it down to us? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring it back to us? But the word is very near you, Moses wrote, in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live and stop arguing about it. I added the last piece. Father, we praise you for the gospel. Father, we praise you for the Holy Spirit and the life of Christ which bought us the privilege of receiving him into our hearts and into our midst. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.